Chapter thirty one of Women in Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Women in Love by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter thirty one. Exeunt. When they brought the body home the next morning, Gudrun was shut up in her room. From her window she saw men coming along with a burden over the snow. She sat still and let the minutes go by. There came a tap at her door. She opened. There stood a woman saying softly, oh, far too reverently, They have found him, madam. Il est mort? Yes, hours ago. Gudrun did not know what to say. What should she say? What should she feel? What should she do? What did they expect of her? She was coldly at a loss. Thank you, she said, and she shut the door of her room. The woman went away mortified. Not a word, not a tear. Oh, Gudrun was cold, a cold woman. Gudrun sat on in her room, her face pale and impassive. What was she to do? She could not weep and make a scene. She could not alter herself. She sat motionless, hiding from people. Her one motive was to avoid actual contact with events. She only wrote out a long telegram to Ursula and Birkin. In the afternoon, however, she rose suddenly to look for Lurker. She glanced with apprehension at the door of the room that had been Gerald's. Not for worlds would she enter there. She found Lurker sitting alone in the lounge. She went straight up to him. "'It isn't true, is it?' she said. He looked up at her. A small smile of misery twisted his face. He shrugged his shoulders. "'True?' he echoed. "'We haven't killed him?' she asked. He disliked her coming to him in such a manner. He raised his shoulders wearily. "'It has happened,' he said. She looked at him. He sat crushed and frustrated for the time being, quite as emotionless and barren as herself. My God, this was a barren tragedy! Barren! Barren! She returned to her room to wait for Ursula and Birkin. She wanted to get away, only to get away. She could not think or feel until she had got away, till she was loosed from this position. The day passed. The next day came. She heard the sledge, saw Ursula and Birkin alight, and she shrank from these also. Ursula came straight up to her. "'Gudrun!' she cried, the tears running down her cheeks and she took her sister in her arms. Gudrun hid her face on Ursula's shoulder. 
but still she could not escape the cold devil of irony that froze her soul. <sighs> she thought, this is the right behaviour. But she could not weep, and the sight of her cold, pale, impassive face soon stopped the fountain of Ursula's tears. In a few moments the sisters had nothing to say to each other. "'Was it very vile to be dragged back here again?' Gudrun asked at length. Ursula looked up in some bewilderment. "'I never thought of it,' she said. "'I felt a beast fetching you,' said Gudrun. "'But I simply couldn't see people. That is too much for me.' "'Yes,' said Ursula, chilled. Birkin tapped and entered. His face was white and expressionless. She knew he knew. He gave her his hand, saying, "'The end of this trip, at any rate.' Gudrun glanced at him, afraid. There was silence between the three of them, nothing to be said. At length Ursula asked in a small voice, "'Have you seen him?' He looked back at Ursula with a hard, cold look, and did not trouble to answer. "'Have you seen him?' she repeated. "'I have,' he said coldly. Then he looked at Gudrun. "'Have you done anything?' he said. "'Nothing,' she replied. "'Nothing.' She shrank in cold disgust from making any statement. Lurker says that Gerald came to you when you were sitting on the sledge at the bottom of the Rudelbahn, that you had words, and Gerald walked away. What were the words about? I had better know, so that I can satisfy the authorities, if necessary. Gudrun looked up at him, white, childlike, mute with trouble. There weren't even any words she said. He knocked Lurker down and stunned him. He half strangled me. Then he went away. To herself she was saying, A pretty little sample of the eternal triangle. And she turned ironically away, because she knew that the fight had been between Gerald and herself, and that the presence of the third party was a mere contingency. An inevitable contingency, perhaps, but a contingency none the less. But let them have it as an example of the eternal triangle, the trinity of hate. It would be simpler for them. Birkin went away, his manner cold and abstracted. But she knew he would do things for her, nevertheless. He would see her through. She smiled slightly to herself with contempt. Let him do the work, since he was so extremely good at looking after other people. Birkin went again to Gerald. He had loved him, and yet he felt chiefly disgust at the inert body lying there. 
It was so inert, so coldly dead, a carcass, Birkin's bowels seemed to turn to ice. He had to stand and look at the frozen dead body that had been Gerald. It was the frozen carcass of a dead male. Birkin remembered a rabbit which he had once found frozen like a board on the snow. It had been rigid like a dried board when he picked it up. And now this was Gerald, stiff as a board, curled up as if for sleep, yet with the horrible hardness somehow evident. It filled him with horror. The room must be made warm, the body must be thawed, the limbs would break like glass or like wood if they had to be straightened. He reached and touched the dead face, and the sharp, heavy bruise of ice bruised his living bowels. He wondered if he himself were freezing too, freezing from the inside. In the short, blonde moustache, the life-breath was frozen into a block of ice beneath the silent nostrils. And this was Gerald. Again he touched the sharp, almost glittering fair hair of the frozen body. It was icy cold, hair icy cold almost venomous. Birkin's heart began to freeze. He had loved Gerald. Now he looked at the shapely, strange-coloured face, with the small, fine, pinched nose and the manly cheeks, saw it frozen like an ice pebble. Yet he had loved it. What was one to think or feel? His brain was beginning to freeze, his blood was turning to ice water. So cold, so cold, a heavy, bruising cold pressing on his arms from outside and a heavier cold congealing within him, in his heart and in his bowels. He went over to the snow-slopes to see where the death had been. At last he came to the great shallow among the precipices and slopes near the summit of the pass. It was a grey day the third day of greyness and stillness. All was white, icy, pallid, save for the scoring of black rocks that jutted like roots sometimes, and sometimes were in naked faces. In the distance a slope sheared down from a peak with many black rock-slides. It was like a shallow pot, lying among the stone and snow of the upper world. In this pot Gerald had gone to sleep. 
At the far end the guides had driven iron stakes deep into the snow-wall, so that, by means of the great rope attached, they could haul themselves up the massive snow-front, out onto the jagged summit of the pass, naked to heaven, where the Marienhutter hid among the naked rocks. Round about, spiked, slashed snow-peaks pricked the heaven. Gerald might have found this rope. He might have hauled himself up to the crest. He might have heard the dogs in the Marienhutter and found shelter. He might have gone on down the steep, steep fall of the south side, down into the dark valley with its pines, on to the great imperial road leading south to Italy. He might. And what then? The Imperial Road, the South, Italy. What then? Was it a way out? It was only a way in again. Birkin stood high in the painful air, looking at the peaks and the way south. Was it any good going south to Italy? down the old, old imperial road. He turned away. Either the heart would break, or cease to care. Best cease to care. Whatever the mystery which has brought forth man and the universe, it is a non-human mystery. It has its own great ends. Man is not the criterion best leave it all to the vast, creative, non-human mystery. Best strive with oneself only, not with the universe. God cannot do without man. It was a saying of some great French religious teacher. But surely this is false. God can do without man. God could do without the ichthyosauri and the mastodon. These monsters failed creatively to develop, so God, the creative mystery, dispensed with them. In the same way, the mystery could dispense with man, should he too fail creatively to change and develop. The eternal creative mystery could dispose of man, and replace him with a finer created being, just as the horse has taken the place of the mastodon. It was very consoling to Birkin to think this. If humanity ran into a cul-de-sac and expended itself, the timeless creative mystery would bring forth some other being, finer, more wonderful some new, more lovely race, to carry on the embodiment of creation. The game was never up. The mystery of creation was fathomless, infallible, inexhaustible, for ever. Races came and went, species passed away, but ever new species arose, more lovely, or equally lovely, always surpassing wonder. 
The fountain-head was incorruptible and unsearchable. It had no limits. It could bring forth miracles, create utter new races and new species in its own hour, new forms of consciousness, new forms of body, new units of being. To be man was as nothing compared to the possibilities of the creative mystery. To have one's pulse beating direct from the mystery, this was perfection, unutterable satisfaction. Human or inhuman mattered nothing. The perfect pulse throbbed with indescribable being, miraculous unborn species. Birkin went home again to Gerald. He went into the room and sat down on the bed. Dead, dead and cold. Imperial Caesar, dead and turned to clay, would stop a hole to keep the wind away. There was no response from that which had been Gerald, strange, congealed, icy substance. No more, no more. Terribly weary, Birkin went away about the day's business. He did it all quietly, without bother. To rant, to rave, to be tragic, to make situations, it was all too late. Best be quiet, and bear one's soul in patience and in fullness. But when he went in again at evening to look at Gerald between the candles, because of his heart's hunger, Suddenly his heart contracted, his own candle all but fell from his hand, as with a strange, whimpering cry the tears broke out. He sat down in a chair, shaken by a sudden access. Ursula, who had followed him, recoiled aghast from him, as he sat with sunken head and body convulsively shaken, making a strange, horrible sound of tears. I didn't want it to be like this. I didn't want it to be like this, he cried to himself. Ursula could but think of the Kaiser's Ich habe's nicht gewollt. She looked almost with horror on Birkin. Suddenly he was silent, but he sat with his head dropped to hide his face. Then, furtively, he wiped his face with his fingers. Then suddenly he lifted his head and looked straight at Ursula with dark, almost vengeful eyes. "'He should have loved me,' he said. "'I offered him.' She, afraid, white, with mute lips, answered, "'What difference would it have made?' "'It would,' he said, "'it would.' He forgot her, and turned to look at Gerald. With head oddly lifted, like a man who draws his head back from an insult, 
half haughtily, he watched the cold, mute, material face. It had a bluish cast. It sent a shaft like ice through the heart of the living man. Cold, mute, material. Birkin remembered how once Gerald had clutched his hand, with a warm, momentaneous grip of final love, for one second, then let go again, let go for ever. If he had kept true to that clasp, death would not have mattered. Those who die, and dying still can love, still believe, do not die. They live still, in the Beloved. Gerald might still have been living in the spirit with Birkin, even after death. He might have lived with his friend a further life. But now he was dead, like clay, like bluish corruptible ice. Birkin looked at the pale fingers, the inert mass. He remembered a dead stallion he had seen, a dead mass of maleness, repugnant. He remembered also the beautiful face of one whom he had loved, and who had died still having the faith to yield to the mystery. That dead face was beautiful. No one could call it cold, mute, material. No one could remember it without gaining faith in the mystery, without the soul's warming with new, deep life-trust. And Gerald, the denier, he left the heart cold, frozen, hardly able to beat. Gerald's father had looked wistful, to break the heart. But not this last terrible look of cold, mute matter. Birkin watched and watched. Ursula stood aside, watching the living man stare at the frozen face of the dead man. Both faces were unmoved and unmoving. The candle-flames flickered in the frozen air, in the intense silence. "'Haven't you seen enough?' she said. He got up. "'It's a bitter thing to me,' he said. "'What, that he's dead?' she said. His eyes just met hers. He did not answer. "'You've got me!' she said. He smiled and kissed her. If I die, he said, you'll know I haven't left you. And me, she cried. And you won't have left me, he said. We shan't have any need to despair in death. She took hold of his hand. But need you despair over Gerald, she said. Yes, he answered. They went away, 
Gerald was taken to England to be buried. Birkin and Ursula accompanied the body, along with one of Gerald's brothers. It was the Cry brothers and sisters who insisted on the burial in England. Birkin wanted to leave the dead man in the Alps, near the snow, but the family was strident, loudly insistent. Gudrun went to Dresden. She wrote no particulars of herself. Ursula stayed at the mill with Birkin for a week or two. They were both very quiet. "'Did you need Gerald?' she asked one evening. "'Yes,' he said. "'Aren't I enough for you?' she asked. "'No,' he said. "'You are enough for me as far as a woman is concerned. You are all women to me. But I wanted a man-friend as eternal as you and I are eternal.' "'Why aren't I enough?' she said. "'You are enough for me. I don't want anybody else but you. Why isn't it the same with you?' "'Having you, I can live all my life without anybody else, any other sheer intimacy. But to make it complete, really happy, I wanted eternal union with a man, too.' "'Another kind of love,' he said. "'I don't believe it,' she said. "'It's an obstinacy, a theory, a perversity.' "'Well,' he said, "'you can't have two kinds of love. "'Why should you?' "'It seems as if I can't,' he said. "'Yet I wanted it.' "'You can't have it.' "'Because it's false, impossible,' she said. "'I don't believe that,' he answered. End of Women in Love by D. H. Lawrence Recording by Ruth Golding